The podcast you are about to listen to is not a medical podcast, nor is it designed to diagnose a condition. While there are medical experts on this show, any questions regarding medical care or concern should be directed to a primary care physician. Welcome to Game on Glio, the podcast providing hope, inspiration, education, and real conversations around the difficult journeys of grief and loss and being diagnosed with brain cancer, such as glioblastoma. I'm your host, Shannon Traphagen. If you enjoy our show, please consider writing a review. Also, share us with a friend. You can follow us on Facebook at Game on Glio or on Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast. Or you can visit our website, thegameongleopodcast.com for our blog, insights, and guest snapshots. Season two of the Game on Glio podcast is sponsored by GT Medical Technologies and Gamma Tile Therapy. Learn more at gtmedtech.com. This episode is brought to you by Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield of Western New York. Learn more at bcbswny.com and by Oncosynergy. Learn more at oncosynergy.com. Welcome, everybody, and thank you so much for joining us for this episode. I wanted to share some thoughts that I've had recently regarding the healing process and our journey through it. No matter where our journeys are currently, we are all in the midst of some type of healing, and it looks different for everybody. A year and a half in, and I still come up on days where things are tough. I recently had emotions surface that were unfamiliar to me, unexpected for me. I miss Mike every single day, but I didn't realize how much of a planner I had always been. When you're young, of course, you daydream about your future. And Mike and I met when I was 24 years old. We were barely young adults. We were still growing and learning about life. And so, of course, you start planning. You think about marriage, house, kids, family, what life will look like, career aspirations. And throughout mine and Mike's journey, our life together, we planned a lot. And we were excited. After he died, I wasn't sure what to plan next, where to go. The planner in me has been floundering, and it's been hard for me to just be present in the moment, to value and be open to experiences, something our guest today speaks to. And it recently cropped up in some feelings that I was having about missing Mike, longing that familiarity and close relationship that we had. The planner in me wants to keep looking for that next step. And the best way I can describe it is all of a sudden you're blind and you're in somebody else's house. The territory, the terrain, it's completely unfamiliar. You're trying to feel your way around each corner and navigate a house you don't recognize and you don't know. If it was your own house, You would know every corner, every inch, where every piece of furniture is located. That's the best way I can describe it. After losing a spouse, especially this young, and all that went with it, it wasn't just him. It was our children, the dreams of having a family, something I still hope for. I'm now navigating unfamiliar territory, and I'm trying to feel my way around each corner And the planner in me wants to know what's ahead, what's coming up. And I'm trying very hard to learn and to grow and to realize that I may not know what the future holds and I don't know what things are going to look like. I don't even know if having a family is in store for me anymore. And that's really hard to contend with. Those thoughts and emotions are hard to contend with. 
but a year and a half in, these are still things that come up. This is the journey and the path that you're on when you're grieving the loss of somebody so vital to the life that you've always had. But being open to those experiences, being open to whatever presents itself in my life right now is something that I am trying to learn to do. And it's something that our guest today speaks to on his journey as a patient of brain cancer. And before we talk with our guest, I want to share an article I recently read that speaks to all of this. She's an essayist. Her name is Rebecca Solnit. And she talks about the power of hope and what that actually means, what it looks like. She says, your opponents would love for you to believe that everything is hopeless, that you have no power, that there is no reason to act, that you can't win. But hope is a gift that you don't have to surrender. It's a power that you don't have to throw away. Real hope is not a delusion. And this is the power of hope for all of us, no matter what unique journey we might be on. Hope isn't about living in a fantasy world. It's not about daydreaming. It's not denying any suffering or pain that we might be going through. But it is our power, our gift that we are able to hold on to. We are grounded in hope. That is what allows us to heal, to continue taking those steps forward. It's the hope of a new day, a new surprise, a new sunrise, a good message, uplifting news, feeling a little bit better, finding something joyful. And we all have that. Nobody can take that away from us. Hope isn't a daydream. It's not a fantasy. It is a real feeling, a real emotion, and it is powerful. And so even in the midst of my continued growth through my grieving process, that hope is what allows me to continue learning through this, growing through this. And I am open to these experiences and I am trying to put the planner in me aside just a little bit to recognize that I am in unfamiliar terrain as we all are on our journeys, navigating whatever path it is that we are each individually on right now. And our guest today, Ian Youngblood, is a patient with brain cancer who speaks to just that and his unique journey and how he sees the world and how he has grown from his diagnosis. We will speak to him next after a brief word from our sponsor. Imagine waking up from brain tumor removal surgery knowing that your radiation treatment is already underway. That's how gamma tau therapy works. At the end of brain tumor removal surgery, your neurosurgeon implants tiny gamma tiles where the tumor is most likely to return. So instead of waiting to start daily standard radiation treatments that go on for weeks, you get a head start against tumor cells and get back to your life sooner. Gamma tile therapy is for operable brain tumors of all types, including glioblastomas, brain metastases, and meningiomas. It is a one-time targeted radiation treatment with fewer side effects and far less chance of hair loss than external radiation. Gamma tile therapy is FDA cleared radiation therapy for patients with newly diagnosed malignant brain tumors and recurrent brain tumors. Gamatile therapy is tough on tumors and easier on patients and caregivers. Learn more at gamatile.com. Welcome back. Thank you all for joining us. Our guest today is 31-year-old Ian Youngblood, an MSN RN working in a level one trauma center in Arizona. He also just so happens to have brain cancer. It was at 29 years old and at the start of the COVID pandemic that Nurse Ian was assigned to hard-hit area in New York City to help out with the influx of patients. Shortly into his assignment, Ian became a patient himself, but not a COVID patient, a brain cancer patient. Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, how are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? I'm, I'm doing really well. That's great to hear. I'm excited to chat with you guys. 
I'm really excited to tell your story today for several reasons. Um, your story is fairly fairly unique among brain cancer stories. But before we dive into some of the nitty gritty, start out by telling us a little bit about where you were three years ago, because how this all happened and where you were originally diagnosed was actually in New York City, but there were some hiccups with that diagnosis from what I understand. So tell our listeners a little bit about how everything unfolded uh, three years ago. So I was working in Phoenix, Arizona, teaching ACLS and BLS when the pandemic hit. And then I decided that I'm going to see it in Arizona at some point. So I want to know as much as I possibly can about it. So I ended up joining a staffing agency that was moving out to New York. Mm -hmm. I was able to get rostered um, and literally left within like four days of getting rostered and met a bunch of RNs in New York in one of those hotels in Times Square. And now you were assigned to a specific hospital, is that correct? I helped out with getting everybody oriented, all the new staff oriented. And then I started actually taking like emergency phone calls, you know, concerns, things along those lines. I um, did that for quite a while until I ended up getting um, placed at a kind of a COVID hotel. And that's when I started getting a little bit more patient contact with the uh, patients that were in those COVID hotels. And so now, how far into your assignment in New York were you when you started to kind of have some symptoms and you just were realizing that you just weren't feeling right? I had been in New York for two to three months. I was a week out from being demobilized. Oh. And then I didn't really ever feel like sick. I never like had like, you know, you know, a progression in illness or feeling unwell. It was just, I woke up one day and I threw up. So there was nothing that told me something was wrong mm-hmm. uh, up until I threw up. And some of my staff members were saying that I was like dropping my phone whenever they handed it to me. My So my coordination was off for some reason, which I don't remember. From the time I literally, I woke up, I got, I was about to get ready for work mm-hmm. and I head out to my assignment and catch the bus early in the morning when all of a sudden I just filled the hotel bath, the hotel sink full of puke. Oh, wow. So Oc Health got involved and everybody got involved. And uh, luckily we had a NP student that was a part of the Oc Health and Olivia was her name and she uh, was originally from the area, so she knew which hospital she wanted to take us to. We were trying to get somewhere outside of like the the mainland, outside of Manhattan, because right. we just knew how packed and broken the hospital systems were during that time, just because of the overwhelming inflexation of COVID patients. So okay. we ended up going to a place called White Plains, New York, mm-hmm. and this a lot of this is all hearsay because I don't remember anything from the hotel all the way up until I woke up in ICU. Really? There's bits and pieces that I remember. It's very, very little. Wow. Like I remember one of my staff members that I worked with in um, the hospital systems showing up Mm -hmm. and they weren't allowing anybody into the hospitals. So he kind of like, he was in scrubs, he was a doc. So he, he showed up and was able to get to my floor. But once he got okay. to my floor, all the RN, all the RNs on the staff on that floor, you know, they knew everyone. So they're like, who are you? And he's like, mm-hmm. I can literally see him. Can I just say hi? I just want to mm-hmm. make sure he's okay. So he, I remember um, that doctor showing up and talking with him for a little bit. But other than that, I don't remember the ER visit. I don't re- I remember the neurosurgeon coming in for a split second saying, you have a mass. Okay. And then from there, I knew, you know, and that they were planning on doing surgery the next day. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I, I really don't. It's all hearsay from what my family have said, what other staff members have said. So most of this is just secondhand knowledge that you're getting yes. between those time periods. So there's this gap. Yeah, I really don't know why I don't remember everything from when I started throwing up to being transferred to the ED. Like, I don't know why there's such a large gap of memory missing from that area. Cause 
really, I've been sick before. I've thrown up before. I've never like lost my memory because I'm throwing up. Right. So I don't know if it was because I was on so much pain medication once I got to the ED or Mm -hmm. what the really the case, or maybe I was just so disoriented that I don't remember anything. But all I do know is that we, we got to the ED, you know, it was very tough for a lot of my staff members that I worked close with because they wanted to stay, but you know, they had to go and do their job and they can't be, you know, in the hospital, you know, just stuck with me the entire time. Gosh, I can't even imagine how I mean, this is like literally the start of the pandemic, and yeah. I hate to say the word ground zero, but New York City was kind of ground zero yeah. for um, this, you know, for for the U.S. And here you are in New York, and your body is just like literally going through loops of different crazy symptoms. Yeah. And you guys are all, I mean, you had to have all been just exhausted. I was still in school too for my NP, which I just graduated from. So I remember having to take my pharmacology final in my hotel room and telling the proctor on the camera, hey, like I've been working in New York, like I just got off shift. Can I, if I show you the room, can I take my, like I was showing him the room with my camera on my computer Mm -hmm. to go to the fridge just to get something spicy to drink to stay awake because I had to take my test at like 12 a.m. at night because of the time difference from New York to Arizona. Oh, okay. Oh my gosh. Luckily, that time difference allowed me to log into all my classes. Like I would get off from my shifts and on the bus ride, I would log into my Zoom meetings to listen to my classes and while I'm driving, you know, while we're commuting back to the hotel. And then I'll just carry it up to my room and continue my classes. Yeah, you were already stretched pretty thin. And then here you are, you're waking up and throwing up very suddenly. And there was no fever or anything like that. It was just, you were just throwing up and you were feeling like your coordination, your, your mobile coordination was just off. So I don't remember my coordination being off. That's just what someone told me. Okay. The only thing that I do remember is when I initially woke up, I kind of felt like this weird little twitch in my left eyelid. Mm -hmm. And the only way that I could describe it to anyone and how I described it, the ED doc was like a seizure-like activity in the left eye. But I, you know, it was probably like an absent seizure or something all those lines. I'm not really sure what it was, but it was just a weird twitch. And that's the only thing I could correlate to anything neurological. Okay. So that's what I told them. That prompted the CT. The CT saw something that prompted an MRI, the MRI. And I mean, obviously I got tested for COVID and all this other stuff. Oh, yeah. But due to the throwing up and the, the twitch in the eye, you know, it was a... It was a complete like random find. I never knew that I was growing something in my skull for, I mean, that it had, it had been growing there for years and I never knew about it. Did you have the surgery in New York city or did you go back home first? I did. I had the surgery. We went in on a Sunday to the ED and the next day um, I had surgery. Okay. And so after they did the surgery, in New York, the new, did the New York doctors tell you you had glioblastoma? Yeah, so he told me that before he actually even did the surgery because he said it was crossing the corpus callosum, the, the structure in between the right and left hemisphere of the brain. Interesting. So since glio crosses that membrane, he, was, he, was for sure, he for sure thought it was a stage four glioblastoma. So now you got home to Arizona, mm-hmm. went over to the Ivy Brain Tumor Center mm-hmm. and found out, yes, you do have brain cancer, but it's not glioblastoma. Yeah. So I, when I first moved to Arizona, I was a firefighter in, Seattle, in Washington um, for quite a few years. And then when I came to Arizona and pursued my RN degree, I actually mm-hmm. started at St. Joseph's Hospital in their level one emergency department as a new grad. And I okay. had known about the Barrow Neurological Institute be, due to me working there. Um, so when I okay. I knew where my team was going to be, I had Dr. Dr. Sinai over at the Ivy Brain Tumor Center. I, I knew that I wanted to have my team under the same roof. So I immediately went to them to establish care. And, you know, luckily and thankfully, my brother and my mom were able to fly into New York and help me get back. You know, I remember mm-hmm. my brother, like, you know, we, uh, a good family friend of ours bought us like first class plane tickets to get home from New York so that, you know, we had enough room and space to 
um, travel. Wow. And I remember my brother being like, Hey Ian, it's time for these, these medications and handing me medications from across the aisle. Oh, so, really? and then, you know, my mom wasn't able to get into the hospital either. That must've been so tough for her. <laughs> I think it was. She said, she tells me that she was outside just crying because they wouldn't let her into the hospital. And she, she kind of swindled the system a little bit. She said she, <laughs> she, uh, cause the visiting hours were only towards a certain time and she didn't leave when the visiting hours were up. She was still in my, my room. And, um, you know, my mom's not medical, but mm -hmm. you know, she's still my mom. So she, um, definitely wanted to be there. She definitely shouldn't have let me get up out of bed. Apparently I got up out of bed and I pulled out Ooh. my own catheter. Oh, yeah. That, don't do that. The, the balloon is, <laughs> the balloon is filled for a reason. I wouldn't recommend pulling out your own catheter. Yeah. So, she was like, yeah, you just got up out of bed and then you like walked to the corner of the room and yanked on something. And then all the RNs came in because I was on a bed alarm. Oh, gosh. So, and then they, she's like, they just looked at me like I was supposed to do something. I'm like, I'm like, he's like 6'5". I'm not going to be able to like put him <laughs> back in bed. Your poor mom. Oh, yeah. And, and I know that those are extremely uncomfortable. And when you're so out of it, um, I mean, my, my late husband had a similar circumstance where I had left the room for one minute and uh, to just to go to the bathroom, like outside of his room. And all of a sudden mm -hmm. I see, I hear alarms going off and, and I come running back up to the door and they're like, he pulled his catheter out. And I'm like, why would he do that? But, I mean, we're just out of it. So like we're, we're doped up on pain medication and everything. I mean, I don't even, I messaged one of my classmates cause I was there, I was in the ICU and like the the hospital for about a week. Mm -hmm. And I remember our, our class meetings were on a Tuesday. So that following Tuesday, I messaged them and I said, hey, I need the notes from that Tuesday. I was in the ICU. And I, apparently the neurosurgeon came in and I was doing homework. And he's like, this is ridiculous. And I, mm -hmm. when I messaged my classmate, I said, hey, I need those notes. She's like, what are you talking about? You were on the Zoom meeting. Like we, we knew you were in surgery, but we didn't think you were going to like log in. And you, she was like, yeah, you were showing us your J Pratt tube and everything, the drainage system from the brain, from the surgery and everything. Oh, wow. Luckily, I still passed those tests. Yes. Yes. Thank gosh. And so now explain to our listeners. So when you got to the Barrow Institute um, and they did all of your follow-up, started getting you ready for your treatment plan, what did they say? What's, what is the exact name of the brain cancer that you do have? So we ended up getting a sample from New York and we sent it to the Mayo Clinic to get it genetically tested. Okay. It came back as the highest stage for oleoglioblastoma. Okay. So it's an, the, the short name for it is, they call it an ole. Yep. Which is okay. weird because that's what we called my sister. So she, I mean, she is kind of a little bit of a brain cancer, my sister. Her name's Olivia. We've, her name's Charlotte, but she goes, she always went by Olivia when we were younger. So we always called her Olivia and some people would call her Oli. Oh, I'm sure she loves having that connection. Well, she doesn't actually know about that now, but I will definitely send this link to her when uh, it's up. Oh my gosh. So it's the highest stage oleoglioma. It's an oleoglioma. Yeah, it's a stage three oleoglioma. So you're you're three years into this right now, correct? You're just over three years into this, which is absolutely amazing. And you did your treatments, and right now you're just in a monitoring phase, right? Yes, we're just uh, doing MRIs and watching it. How often do you do the MRIs? Um, I do an MRI probably every four to six weeks is what okay. they would like to do for the first. Apparently, it's for the first three years out of treatment, we watch it. Um, continuously just to make sure that there's no other growth. And mm -hmm. as of right now, there hasn't been any growth, just some flare-ups, but they're, they're thinking that that's probably majority due to the chemo and radiation that I was on. And yeah, scar tissue, scar tissue buildup. Mm -hmm. Yeah. After all of this took place, obviously when you were in New York, your family, your mom, your brother, your siblings, because you have, how many siblings do you have? I have, I always have to count. Um, at home, I have four brothers and one sister, but then there's half sisters out there and okay. it's a, it's a big mess, but I have like six siblings. <laughs> so that's what I thought. I thought, cause I remember I was talking before and when you told me how many siblings you had, I think my mouth dropped. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yep. 
And so now when they first found out that, you know, Ian has brain cancer, I mean, what did, what did they tell you? I mean, like, what was their reaction? Do you know? Did anyone tell you, like, what they were thinking when they got the news? No one's really said anything. I mean, you could obviously tell that they were concerned, mm-hmm. but no one, no one really said anything. Austin was there, you know, in New York, you know, helping me like organize the paperwork, get everything finalized to, you know, figure it all out. And, you know, even to the point of, you know, what are my advanced directives? You know, mm-hmm. I'm at like 29, you don't expect to have to fill out like advanced directives, like who's going to make the call? How long do I want to be on a ventilator before you just pull the plug? Like, right at 29 years old. Luckily, I'm not going to have to go through that. Right. But, but there's no way to really tell like, okay, what's the magic number? Because you hear about people like having those miracle stories, like after a year and a half, they came out of a coma. Like, right, do I want right. to be on a ventilator for a year and a half? Yeah, those are heavy decisions to make at the peak of your young adult life. Yeah. So now, when you did your treatment, did you ever do a clinical trial or did you do the chemo, the standard chemo and radiation? I never did a clinical trial. I did the standard uh, chemo and radiation. I was on um, Trasdomir, I believe is what it was called. It was an oral pill that I was taking before my uh, radiation. And I continued that for quite a while after I finished all the radiation and the the treatment plan. Because um, apparently the medication that I was on was really effective towards the type of brain cancer that I had. So it was kind of a hit or miss. Like my neuro-oncologist, Dr. Fonkham, he was like, you know what? You met the research criteria. There's no negative or positive to continue the medication. Right. But then his nurse practitioner, Charlotte, was like, well, Ian, we know that this medication, you know, targets this brain cancer really well. So as long as your body is handling the side effects to it, you know, you could continue it. So I did continue it for like a few months afterwards. Just for a few months. So you didn't, because I know that the, the, typically it's temozolomide, which is the standard chemo. And most of the time they keep patients on that anywhere from six months to 24 months. Yeah, for the treatment. So I stayed on it for that much during my radiation and all that. But then I continued the medication at, um, longer after the actual treatment plan was, was quote complete. unquote, ended, completed. Okay. Yes. Okay. So that, that was my own decision. And now, so as you were going through this, you know, here you are, you know, you're 29 years old and you're dealing with a brain cancer tumor that, you know, you'll have to monitor for the rest of your life. It's, it's a hard question to ask, so it's going to be a hard question to answer, but were there any dark days? You know, were there any days where you were just like, you know, what the hell just happened to me? Definitely like right afterwards, because I was just in like a, a period of unknown. Like it was mm-hmm. something like I'm good at emergency medicine. I'm good mm-hmm. at orthopedics. Like I'm, I'm good at that stuff. I don't know anything about brain cancer or yeah. oncology. Like I think initially there was some dark days where I was just like, you know, what do I do now? Like it's kind of like I was listening. I was actually I was working on a new chicken coop outside the other day. And I knew that we had this this uh, recording today, and I was listening to some country songs. It kind of reminds me of like the um, what's what is that country song where um, "Live Like You Were Dying." You oh know? yes. And if you were to do, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know, I I haven't gotten riding on a on a bull named uh, Hu Manchu for eight <laughs> seconds, but I definitely I definitely opened myself up to experiencing a little bit more and not being so gun-ho about my studies and my work and all that, you know, I opened myself up to actually, you know, going and hanging out with friends, going and seeing people and going and not, not being so stringent on my time, my own personal time, but allowing myself to be a little bit more, you know, free. So I definitely noticed that. Would you say that's the difference pre-diagnosis and post-diagnosis is that you saw life differently in that way? Yes, definitely. But I'm also like, I'm also a realistic. So in a way I'm like, mm-hmm. it is what it is. Like I, I've talked about it a few times, but I've not like someone that's like, Oh, you know, mm-hmm. I have this X, this and this, like, I don't, it is what it is. Like I'll watch it. I'll live my life the way I can live it. And you know, really there's no, you can't really 
you can't really go back and be like, what if, you know, it, you know, there's no, there's, you know, what if has already passed, you know, it's what can I do now and what can I do in the future? That is really key that you bring that up because the what ifs, they can be shackles and they really can really hold somebody back. And, mm-hmm. um, I, I, myself, have gone through the what ifs, you know, what if we had done this? What if Mike had done that? What if he, you know, wasn't an engineer? Would he, you know, have gotten brain cancer? And, you know, you go through this what if game and you're absolutely right. I mean, the the what ifs are already passed. You know, there's nothing you can do about what's already happened. It's what do you do now in the present and what do you do going forward? Yeah. What do you make the most of about today? Not, not yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. There are other things that you do. I mean, you're you're really really active. Um, I know we both have a, a massive passion for dogs. <laughs> so, yep. Um, yep, mine are laying at my feet right now. And what are their names? So Kinji. Kinji is my American Blue Great Dane. Okay. He's actually named after the Purkinje fibers, how your electrical activity travels through your heart. Very cool. So, and okay. then I have a new one. The new one's Avi. She's an Australian blue healer that I rescued from Colorado. Uh, she um, is named Avi after the atrial ventricular valve, yep. which would have been Kinji's name if he was a girl. But <laughs> but it didn't work for him. Nope, nope. And I know that they're, they're, your dogs have brought you an enormous amount of, of healing and of peace. And you pretty much take them everywhere you go, correct? I do, yeah. Yeah. So... Now, you do a lot of other things, though. You you also practice yoga pretty extensively, correct? Yes, I'm a yoga instructor, so I've been doing that for four or five years now, five years now. Oh, wow. I teach at a local yoga yoga studio here in Arizona, and I also try to practice as much as I can. So now, how do you feel yoga has, has, do you feel yoga has helped you in, in dealing with the path that you are now on and and with the diagnosis that you were given? I mean, did you lean into that quite a bit? I think so. I think I definitely did. I, I truly believe that it's what we do now that prepares us for later. And honestly, if I wasn't, if I wasn't as healthy and involved in my nutrition and my exercise and my physical health, I don't think I would have done as well um, recovery from, you know, this surgery. And definitely from like a, a like a peace of mind and like a control of my thoughts, I think yoga mm-hmm. has definitely helped with that because it helps me, you know, with my breathing and controlling my heart rate and my way of thinking and, you know, whether it's mm-hmm. positive or negative and how do I, how do I, you know, I always do this thing usually when I'm in yoga and if I'm in a meditative spot, if there's something that doesn't actually serve me my kind of visual therapy is putting it into a bubble and watching it float away. Oh, I like that. And that's how I kind of get rid of things that are, you know, not where they should be. Like if it's, if I'm working on something on the internal side and I don't need anything else, then I can, uh, that's usually what I'll do is like, and I'll even like send, send little miners into my like body to like work on scaffolding, like a hurt joint or exercise. And I'll just do visual therapies to help me help guide myself to a healthier, better place. These are great visualizations. We may actually have to have you do a yoga video session for us so that we can give it to other brain cancer patients and we'll post it on our YouTube channel because I think these are such great visuals and I'm picturing it in my own head right now, (laughs) I guess you're explaining it. You always think of like, you know, you remember um, uh, Snow White and Seven Dwarves? Yeah. You know, the hi-ho, hi-ho, hi-ho. So like, I would send like little dwarves into like a hurt joint and I, based off of that, I would focus on healing that part of my body during like the meditative state of my yoga practice. I love that. And I think everyone, everyone should meditate. Like, you know, start off with like a minute and a half to two minutes a day and then increase it slowly. The thing is, mm-hmm. is people always think that your mind has to be clear when you meditate. And that's not necessarily true. You can have thoughts and everything come in. It's just whether or not those thoughts serve you. If they don't serve you, let them go. Right. And that does take a lot of practice. Yeah, it does. That's why you start off slow and it's consistency that makes the difference. So now what are doctors, are doctors saying what next steps are, or is it just maintaining the course that you're currently on? 
currently it's just maintaining the course that I'm on. Mm-hmm. Dr. Sinai, I asked him if, you know, are we ever going to have to go back in and do any other surgeries? And he said, not unless you actually, you have some like severe symptoms. So unless anything flares up dramatically or really starts to grow or act up. Mm-hmm. So we've mentioned this a few times and you've kind of referenced it. So I want to make sure we get it in there because you did just have a massive accomplishment. You just completed uh, your master's degree. And mm-hmm. so I, I would love for you to tell listeners what you what you finished your degree in and what you're currently doing now for work, because it just, it does blow my mind. <laughs> yeah. So I currently just finished my master's of science in nursing with an emphasis in family nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm. I'm studying for my boards and my end goal is to hopefully at some point open up my own orthopedic sports med clinic and incorporate my love for like yoga, fitness, nutrition, and health and making an all wellness uh, establishment to, you know, help and encourage patients to find and create a better version of themselves. So that is my, that is my uh, end goal. You know, anything can really change, but uh, that is my, my ambition and my goal as of right now. So, I mean, you've already accomplished so much. And, you know, you were on the front lines of the pandemic. You've worked in in, um, in cardiac care. Um, you know, you've achieved this massive goal in nursing. How how does it feel? I mean, to work so hard to get across this finish line, especially given everything else that's gone on, you know, in such a short time frame in the last few years, how does it feel to, to look back and say, you know, to see what you've done uh, just in the last couple of years? You're asking me an emotion question. Um, <laughs> yes, I am, Ian. <laughs> I don't really know, honestly. Like, I just, I've never, I just always just do. It's not like I'm like, okay, you know, I'm super excited about X, Y, and Z. Like, I mean, my my big passion is scuba diving. I love scuba diving, which I got in a little tr- bit of trouble when I scuba dived right after brain surgery. They didn't really like that too much, but... I can imagine. You know, ask for forgiveness rather than permission, right? <laughs> so uh, that is not the advice we give all of our listeners. We'll just put that out there now. <laughs> don't do that right after brain cancer, after brain surgery. Um, no. But I had actually, I had enough time from the actual surgery that they're like, yeah, that's that's okay. If you had done it like right after the brain surgery, then the pressure wouldn't have been good at all. But I wasn't in right. a state to do anything right after my surgery. But yeah, I you know. Regarding your question, I mean, I'm excited. I'm, I truly believe, you know, that growth is the most important part of our lives and that you should always continue to learn and educate yourself and grow. So I'm really excited to step into a new chapter of my life. I love taking care of people. I'm, I have always said that I am the pillar to hold you up until you have the strength to hold yourself up on your own. Oh, I like that motto. And so I'm excited to go into a next step of my field where I can have more involvement and more autonomy in my patient care and how I deliver my love for medicine and the love for others. So that I am truly excited about. Well, I think it's a massive accomplishment. I think that everything that you have worked towards thus far, um, and I know that there is so much more to come from you, um, but it's a huge testament to the type of person that you are and the amount of heart that you have, not only to help others, but there's this internal strength that there's this fighter inside of you that I've gotten to know over the last several months. And it's, it's impressive to see. And I really do think that that is a big testament to why you're here today and how, you know, you're doing so well and, and the success that you have had both personally and professionally. Mm-hmm. It's a massive accomplishment, and I think you should be really proud of yourself. I'm curious, you know, what do you think is next for you personally? Um, you know, we know what's kind of on the horizon for you professionally, but where do you see yourself personally in the next few years? Well, uh, I mean, I just bought chickens, so I got to take care of those little girls for a while. Those are a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then obviously, Avi is a little farm dog, but she's she's a sweetheart. You're just a little rowdy sometimes, huh? Yeah, good girl. Oh, I don't know. I just want to like live, you know. Like I just want to like not. I don't mean live as in 
like my heart's still beating. I want to, you know, explore. I want to um, travel. I want to get out a little bit more and I will always be learning, but there's also different types of learning. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd like to travel outside the country and live somewhere else for a little bit just to learn about other people and um, establish myself a little bit more worldly. But as for what's next, I'm kind of just, you know, wherever the wind blows me. I think that that's a good philosophy. I think it's one that many are starting to adopt these days. Uh, brain cancer or no brain cancer, you know, I think the pandemic alone has taught us a lot about needing to really enjoy life a bit more and be able to be still and be in the moment that we're in instead of looking so far ahead or looking so far back. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think work has definitely taken on different meaning <laughs> to everybody <laughs> these days. Um and the importance of family and friends. And I know that for you, family and friends are extremely important. You have got a huge support group and a circle around you that has has never relented. So I know that that is something that means a great deal to you. It definitely does. You know, it's when I first got back from from New York, people would be like, "Hey, you're the you're the RN from like they're like a little shocked like when I'm teaching an ACLS class like, "Are you the RN that went to New York that was on like the Today Show and all that stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that's me. So, you know, there's definitely anybody that's like listening to this, you know, that for some reason have seen my story in the past or whatever, and have sent out prayers and encouragements, you know, out out there. I I truly appreciate it. I just want everyone listening to know how much, you know, I do appreciate um, the support and the love from my family, my friends, um, and that support group through, you know, the medical system, you know, cause we're all, you know, those that are in medicine, we're a family, whether or not we're next to each other in a trauma bay or on a different floor or in a different part of the country, like we're, we're all family. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you guys are all doing extremely important work. I talk about it all the time. And I talk about all of you guys, whether you're nurses or doctors all of you are on the front lines battling many different things and helping people get better. And sometimes you guys need help too. And yeah, it's important to take care of yourself, not just, not just everyone else. If you're not healthy, how are you going to help someone else be healthy? Absolutely. So what message would you give to our listeners, especially those who are brain cancer patients themselves? Um, What would you say to them right now? So to the listeners, I would say, don't get so caught up in your everyday that you forget to smell the roses. For the the patients that have brain cancer, take it one day at a time. There's no reason to rush anything. Listen to your providers, do your own research. Don't get caught up in the negatives that brain cancer has that comes with it that doesn't help anyone and really don't dwell on the past but live in the present and create a future because really when it comes down to none of us know how long we truly have that is very true don't forget to tell the people that you love them and don't forget to to just live your life like there's no reason that we have to be put into a box because of a diagnosis or a situation. Rather, just mm-hmm. live your life and do what you want and make the most of it. Well, I think that that's very well said, and I don't think there's any more we need to say after that. Um, I'm truly grateful to have had you on. Um, I This is such an important episode. I think it's so vital for everybody who listens to Uh, be aware that there are success stories, you know, no matter how dire the circumstances can seem around brain cancer, there are those who are truly thriving Mm -hmm. with and doing well with no matter the type of brain cancer, because they're all heavy hitters. And not even brain cancer, you know, everything, Mm -hmm. everything that we go through, you can, you can make it. You absolutely can. And we all have mountains. We all have hills that we have to climb, but it's that hope that we carry with us and that positivity we hold on to uh, that really makes the difference. And you have an abundance of that. And that 
shines through very clearly. So thank you very, very much um, for joining us today and for sharing your story. Thank you. I appreciate it. And we will be right back after a quick message from our sponsor. Anko Synergy is a biotechnology company that develops therapeutics to dramatically improve the standard of care for patients suffering from the worst cancers. Founded by physicians frustrated with the limited treatment options available to brain cancer patients, Anko Synergy is now on a mission to develop better treatments for those battling brain cancer. Anko Synergy's passion and drive have led to the prioritized development of their leading therapeutic OS2966 for treatment of glioblastoma. OS2966 works by blocking a key receptor that manages cancer-promoting communications between tumor cells and their surroundings. Based on encouraging preclinical data, Oncosynergy has now launched a phase one clinical trial for treatment of recurrent glioblastoma. The trial is currently enrolling patients at Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. Learn more about Oncosynergy and their phase one clinical trial at Oncosynergy.com. I'd like to end today's episode with a thought that was recently shared with me about the importance of the work that we're doing here on the show. It's interesting to talk to Ian and hear his journey and his story for many, many reasons. But one of those reasons is the connections that are made, not just through his story, but how we all seem to weave together. There's a bond that's created through the storytelling that we do here on the podcast. There are strands of a connectivity between all of us. And when I hear Ian's journey and how he went from New York City back home out west and was connected to Dr. Sinai of the Ivy Brain Tumor Center, there was a strand. There was a connection. Dr. Sinai was a guest on our first season, and here is this patient, Ian, who is a guest on our second season that... I originally had no idea was connected to Dr. Sinai. These connections are so vital and so important in so many ways. It was recently brought to my attention um, through somebody that I work with, uh, that I know very well, that these connections help him when he's able to find these strands, these, these strings of shared commonality. It's when we're feeling lost and we're feeling our loneliest that these connections are the most profound and give us the most strength. And it is not hard to feel lonely and disconnected and lost in this day and age, especially with everything that's going on around us, decisions that are being made on our behalf that we have no control over, whether nationally or emotionally or physically in battling a disease. And it's so interesting to see how each of the guests that I have had on interweave and lock us together in these important bonds. It allows us to feel tethered, not only to another individual, but to a community a group of people that can be our pillars, it carries us forward. And that's extremely important and profound. And it's with that in mind that we take a step each day, that we move forward, that we get up, that we rise to the challenge of what we're facing each and every day. And just as Ian shares his journey with us, and I share my journey with you, so many of the guests that we have had on shared very personal stories, even if they're professionals in the field. And we can all find a way to find those tethers, those strands, those glimmers of light and hope and connectedness that allow us to feel less lonely on this journey. And so I ask each and every one of you, as you listen to these episodes, look for the light between each and every story that weaves us all together. It's so important that we stay connected. 
And with that in mind, and this journey and discussion of connectedness, I want to remind or let all of you know who don't know that we are in our second year of Trap Hagen's Trail Ride for Brain Cancer, the fundraiser that I founded a year ago. And we have a kickoff event to start the fundraising in the goal and the hope of raising more than we raised last year for brain cancer clinical trials and initiatives. So if any of you are in the Western New York or Buffalo, New York region, or happen to live not too far away from the area, we are hosting a movie night at Canal Side on August 5th. You can come anytime after 7.15 p.m. I am co-hosting this with Hope Rises Network and my friend Kate Glazer. And we have some amazing sponsors for this night. We have Gamma Tile Therapy, who is our presenting sponsor, and we'll be showcasing a special message before the movie starts, and a local sponsor, Enrich Products. Now, again, this is just a kickoff event to really get the fundraising started, and then we will also be hosting our cycling event in October, which is our bigger event, and that will culminate and close down the fundraising that we do for the next two months. So I hope to see many of you there. You can donate. We are asking everybody that attends to please donate. The movie that we will be showing that night is Ghostbusters Afterlife, so I'm very excited about that. It'll be a great, fun way to celebrate a summer evening for a great cause. All proceeds will benefit Roswell Park Brain Cancer Clinical Trials and Initiatives. And even if you can't make it, if you'd like to donate online, please feel free to do so. On the Facebook page for Game on Glio, we have an event page set up for that. And we also have an Eventbrite page set up for the movie night. You can also go to the donation page at give.roswellpark.org slash go to slash Trap Hagen's Trail Ride, the number four brain cancer. Until next month, Thank you all so much for listening and be sure to tune in actually on August 11th because in August we have two episodes for you. So we will be starting with our first episode on August 11th and it is truly a remarkable story that you will want to hear and you will be a bit surprised at the journey that this individual has taken. A proud episode sponsor for the Game on Glio podcast, Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield of Western New York has helped millions of members since 1936 lead healthier lives. As a community-based, not-for-profit health plan, Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield invests millions of dollars each year to strengthen and enrich the health and quality of life in Western New York. Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield provides a wide variety of health and wellness initiatives throughout our community all year long including a full summer schedule of free fitness classes throughout the region, which can be found online at bcbswny.com play. You've been listening to the Game on Glio podcast, the podcast that is designed to educate, advocate, and tell the real stories of those walking the journey of brain cancers, such as glioblastoma and grief and loss. If you like our show, please share us with others. Follow us on Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast or on Facebook at Game on Glio. You can visit our website and our YouTube channel. You can find us anywhere podcasts are played.